Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're starting our next micro-series in our year-long study of the book of Matthew. We're calling it Authority and Power. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as he brings us a message where we take a look at two ways to lead. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 21 today. Matthew 21. Um, now, um, before we dive into today's text, I, let, me, let me be really honest about uh, this particular section of scriptures. Uh, from this point on in Matthew, uh, this is the stuff that I've been most excited to teach on, uh, if, if just to be completely transparent. Uh, some of the stuff in the middle is a little harder, and I actually really enjoyed it because I had to study some stuff I hadn't studied before, at least not in depth. Um, but this stuff that we're going to look at uh, next is electric. I uh, know what, tip, what typically happens is, uh, so um, we're going to kick off the last, so this passage today is the story of Palm Sunday. It kicks off the last week of Jesus kind of earthly ministry, uh, ends with crucifixion on uh, Thursday, Friday, and then you've got, uh, you've got Easter Sunday. Now what typically happens in, as we kind of study this one is we will often meet on Palm Sunday, and as a church we'll celebrate Palm Sunday, we'll, we'll tell that story, uh, we'll sing the songs, and then we go home. And the majority of us don't get together again until Easter Sunday, uh, and we, we can skip all of the stuff in between the two. Um, what you're going to see is Matthew is, uh, so Matthew tells the story of Jesus' life. We've been walking through it for nine months. And over the course of nine months, we've covered roughly three years of Jesus' public ministry. Um, a couple chapters at the beginning about his childhood, but the rest of his three years of his public ministry. Now what you're going to find is there's a large section, almost a third of, of Matthew's gospel, just dedicated to the things that happened between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And so uh, I'm excited. I'm excited uh, for really two reasons. Uh, first, I, we get to go slowly through this. Time is going to slow way down now. We're going to look at a narrative that takes place within... If, if we've been painting with broad strokes, uh, things are now much finer detail. Matthew includes it for a reason, and we get to look at it. Um, but the, the other reason I'm excited is a lot of the lessons we've been exploring about how to read the Bible, the, like, that was practice. Now we get to, like, we get to see all, like, how it all plays out. Uh, and so um, we're launching a new like, mini-series inside of our big series of Matthew, and uh, if you know, every, the first Sunday of all these mini-series, we've said, hey, let's try to teach not just the content, but like, how do, we, how do we read this book? How do we engage this book? And so last, the last little micro-series, we talked about finding the elephants, and we played that game for five or six weeks. And I said last week, we'll maybe not play that game anymore for a while. But um, so here's, here's what I want to introduce you to this time that we'll be kind of watching over the next several weeks as we walk through the last week of Jesus' life. I want us to pay attention to the layers of the scriptures. Okay, so you've got the, the, the surface read of the scripture. This is the story. I mean, we can often just read that layer, and then we sing the songs, and uh, good enough. But there's layers to the story that if we understand the layers, I think you'll discover there's an electricity inside the story. But sometimes you've got to do the work and understand the layers. So there's uh, the, the historical layer to a story. So one of the questions you can always be asking is, 
is there, what was going on in history at this time that might change how I read this passage? Historical layer of scripture. Then you've got the political layer of scripture. Uh, who's the superpower? Who's the underdog? How are those two related right now? How are they interconnected? Uh, where is this being written so that I, like, who's in charge of that region? Okay, uh, third layer is the biblical layer. Um, and you're going to see this all over this last week of Jesus, but leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, Matthew is going to wrap this story in the larger story of God's people. Uh, and he's going to make all kinds of statements about who Jesus is by wrapping the story of Jesus in all of these Old Testament stories. So the better you know those stories, the more you catch what, what he's saying here. Um, the way I often think of it as is like, if, if you were to say to me, uh, Tim, we want you to build us a, a 20,000 foot or 200, how big is a house? I don't even know. 200,000 foot house? Is that a big house? 600,000 foot house? Okay. If you were to build me a mansion, and uh, we want a mansion, and I have endless resources, you say to me, and I say, can you build me that ranch? And I'll say, yes, I could build you that ranch in Jamestown. If you have endless resources, we can buy some land. We can... But then if you were to say to me, no, I want that ranch in New York City. I would say to you, does it matter how much money you have? We can't put a ranch that big in New York City. There's no room for the ranch. The only way we can build you that house is to not have a ranch, but to build it like this. We've got to build you a skyscraper. So uh, when you have certain books, things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, we'll go with Harry Potter. So you've, you've got a long narrative to, to lay out the characters, to go through the drama, and you can span it over several thousand pages of a narrative. But when it comes to the Bible, the way the Bible chooses to give us the story is often not in just one long narrative, but one deep narrative. It stacks the stories on top of each other. So the more you understand about the, these stories, the more this story will start to make sense. Okay, so that's the biblical layer. We'll look at that a lot. There's a geographical layer to the story. Uh, Jesus, in the story we're going to look at, he's going to leave his home in the Galilee, and he's going to travel to Jerusalem. One of the questions you can be, not, be asking is, how is... Jerusalem, different than the Galilee. Um, what you'll discover is that in the Galilee, the people Jesus has bumped into is a group of people known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. Jesus, by and large, comes from a group of people known as the Pharisees. He agrees with their worldview. In fact, he even says, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, listen to them, but don't do as they do. His accusation against the Pharisees is not that they have bad beliefs, it's that they're hypocrites, they don't live into their beliefs. But now Jesus is going to travel 90 miles south to Jerusalem, and we're not dealing in Pharisee turf anymore. We are now strictly in a, in a region, where there's like a whole new group of players here known as the Sadducees. And these people, as we, as we bump into them over the next few weeks, very different worldview than Jesus. And so who are the players? Uh, that's a, then the last layer is the social layer to the story. Who are the people? What are their concerns? What are their fears? What are the things they want most? There's an electricity of the story when we put the layers together. And what you're going to see in one week, you've got the Pharisees who come from the north with Jesus uh, down for this festival. You've got the Pharisees conspiring with their enemies theologically, the Sadducees, who together are conspiring with the Romans 
all of their enemies to have Jesus killed. Why? What happens between Sunday and Friday that would so work them up that they will go to the spot of, he's our king, Palm Sunday, to we got to kill him. We get to go slowly through that over the next few months. Uh, let's start at the beginning. We're going to be in, uh, we're going to, actually, I think we're going to go through this until Christmas-ish. So we should do Easter on Christmas, which kind of be, it's like Christmas in July, Easter, same thing. Uh, hey, we're going to start in the beginning. It's Palm Sunday. Um, we're going to look at that story. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably are somewhat familiar with the story. Uh, Jesus, just a few days before he's crucified, marches into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. They're waving palm branches. They declare that he's king. They say Hosanna or Hosanna. My wife and I have a longstanding debate whether it's Hosanna or Hosanna. It's Hoshana, and so uh, it could be both. Uh, they, he comes in, and uh, this, whole, like, this whole triumphant scene takes place as Jesus marches in, and they're waving the branches. And you discover, if you read the story closely, there are all sorts of elephant, to use language we used last couple weeks, there are elephant-sized problems in this story. So how do we read this story? How do we put it together? Now, here's a quick disclaimer. Um, actually, let me, give you, let me give you a couple disclaimers. Uh, Disclaimer before we go on. This, um, I, I've got a lot to show you, and, uh, and so it's a lot. I'm just going to warn you. It's a lot. If you get bored easily, you got to fake it because it'll hurt my feelings if you fall asleep. There's not enough of you that you can fall asleep today, okay? Um, so that's the first disclaimer. Second disclaimer is uh, some of the things we're going to look at this morning is review, I hope. So if you've been around South Harbor for a while, um, we've worked through this story before. I, I need to show you it again. Uh, I... And I need to show you some of the historical content, context stuff again for where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Because if you miss this one, it's going to be harder to figure out kind of how the next stories are playing out. So we're going to cover some stuff that if you've been around here, I think we talked about this last in depth at least in 2018. Some, I think that was right. So uh, if you've been around since before that, some of this hopefully is review. And, and if you're like 15 minutes in, you're like, I think I've heard this before. Just, yes, you have. Okay, so... That's the first disclaimer. Second disclaimer, if you're newer with us in the last three or four years, the second disclaimer is I got a lot and it's going to come at, it's, it's a lot. So it's going to feel a bit like drinking from a fire hose. You may want to take notes. Okay. It'll feel, we got to build the layers. And if there's any story that I love to teach, it's this one. So with that, let's waste no time. Matthew 21 Beginning in verse 1, Matthew 21, verse 1. This is Matthew's account of Palm Sunday. As they approached Jerusalem. Now let's pause there. Um, this, this detail will set the stage for all that's going to come next. As they approached Jerusalem. Let's begin with the geographical layer. Here's the question. Why is Jesus, who's made his home in Capernaum, most of the stories we've looked at have taken place up in this region. It's known as the Galilee region. He's from the city of Capernaum. Why is Jesus 90 miles south in the city of Jerusalem? It's not like you can just jump in an Uber. Like, why, why? Why is he so far from home? What's Jesus doing in Jerusalem? That's the, just the first question you should ask as you're reading through the story. What's he doing there? Now, the answer 
It's because Jesus is a Jew. Which, by the way, if you, if you are new with us and that's the first time you heard this, I realize, like, Jesus is a Jew. Jesus grew up a Jew. He wore tassels like a Jew. He, the reason this takes place on a Sunday is because he celebrates Sabbath like a Jew. Uh, Jesus eats kosher like a Jew. Uh, understanding the Jewish context of Jesus opens the Bible up to you in tremendous ways. You're thinking, but Jesus was a Christian. Jesus was a Christ. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jesus is a Jew. Okay, so Jesus is there because he's a Jew. He's there because a lot of Jews, actually all Jews, were commanded to go to Jerusalem for something. Anybody know what? It'll take place, okay, I heard it. Passover. Later this week will be a festival. The festival is known as Passover. All Jews from all, the, all over were required to, they had three pilgrim festivals. Passover was the biggest of them. So just like uh, Christmas is our biggest holiday, Passover was their biggest holiday. So Jesus, like all Jews, is heading for Passover. Now, that takes us to a biblical layer to the story. What's Passover? What's Passover? Um, If you grew up in the church, you may have heard some of this stuff before. Um, But there's layers to Passover. Passover is a celebration of an event that takes place 100 or 1,500 years earlier before this story. Uh, It's a story of a man named Moses. You know the story? God, through Moses, sees that his people are enslaved to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the world superpower of the day. They have the most sophisticated technology. They build the pyramids. I mean, the Egyptians were the top. But they've oppressed and enslaved the Jewish people. And so God, through a man named Moses, sets his people free. And so Passover is a celebration of this event. What they said was, if our God, our God can do anything. If God can use Moses, a shepherd in a desert, to set people free, our God can do anything. And so they celebrated that through God, anything is possible. So the first reason that they celebrated Passover was to remember this event. It was a celebration of this event in their past in which God set his people free. Central to the, to the celebration was all Jews from all over coming to remember a moment in the past. Uh, the historian Josephus, he's a first century Jewish historian, he claims in his writing of history, he claims that 2.7 million people would pack into the city of Jerusalem for the celebration of this festival. Now, his numbers probably exaggerated a bit, but his point is stands. Lots of people packed into an ancient city on narrow streets. Anybody been to Jerusalem? Here, Okay, a couple of, yeah, 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 of course you guys have. Yes, narrow streets, am I right? Yeah, kind of scary streets if cars are zinging by you. Uh, narrow streets. It's kind of, um, I was driving by yesterday on uh, uh, 28th Street in the Beltline, and you know the Chick-fil-A that's right there? And all the cars. Think crowded streets like Chick-fil-A on a Saturday morning. Uh, <laughs> earlier this week, this, um, this girl at, in the office back at Fairhaven Church in Hudsonville, she was, t- she was talking about how she's so excited because they're going to open a Chick-fil-A in Jamestown, and she's from Jamestown, and so it's like, they're going to open a Chick-fil-A. And I was like, okay, I don't want to burst your bubble. Chick-fil-A is delicious, okay? Here's the problem with Chick-fil-A. 
Chick-fil-A is so good at logistics. I don't know how they do it. They move thousands of people through Chick-fil-A in a matter of minutes. I, don't know, I honestly don't know how they do it. I'm always in awe of how they do that. Um, but the problem with Chick-fil-A is that even though, by the way, I think during, during the pandemic, we should have just said, you figure it out, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> they would have, they would have. Uh, but like the problem is they're so good at logistics that the streets that aren't as good as logistics get all backed up. And so I'm always like all backed up waiting for Chick-fil-A lines to get through. Anyway, my point, Jerusalem is packed. It's a celebration. It's a festival. The streets are slammed. Josephus says 2.7 million people packed in to remember the time in their past where God set the people free. So that's the first reason. Second reason why this is such a big deal is that this was a festival. The word festival is a Hebrew word, mikra. It means, you can translate it festival, but it also means to rehearse. Here's what they believed. Not only is this about remembering something from our past, but a festival is about rehearsing for something in our future. Something that God moved in the past. Something's coming. Now, the reason this was such a big deal at the time of Jesus was there was a new global superpower on the scene. The Egyptians are long gone. I mean, they still got a remnant of their empire, but they're nothing like they used to be. But there's a new superpower on the scene, the Romans. And the Romans, this brings us to a political layer. So let's go politics. The Romans make the Egyptians look small. They make them look unsophisticated. The Romans are larger, stronger. Their empire extends further. And the Romans, they were absolutely vicious. The Romans took a torture device. It was known as, uh, by the, used by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It was known as an impaling stake. All their enemies would go on the impaling stake. But they, what they realized was this impaling stake, if you put your enemy on it, they only survived for a matter of, of minutes at most. It just, they died right away. You impale them. So they said, what if we could take the impaling stake and we could make them stay alive longer so like the birds could come and eat their flesh and uh, they, they, they'd struggle to breathe and they would die of asphyxiation. That would be cool, they said. Uh, how do we do that? Well, what if we add a beam off the top of it and we stretch them out? Now they can breathe as long as their body allows them to push themselves up. Um, and it, it'll last longer. They called this invention with the cross beam a cross. And they were not afraid to use this cross. Uh, in the years right before Jesus, we have a number of insurrections because there's a number of Jews who said, this isn't right. These, these are not the good guys, and they're in our home turf. And so a number of communities would get together, and they would say, we should fight them. And the Romans would come in, and they would wipe them flat. Uh, let me give you a couple of places. Uh, a, you've heard of the city of Emmaus? You know, the, the two men walking down the road, or the two people walking the road to Emmaus, the disciples of Jesus after the resurrection? Uh, city of Emmaus... Uh, 3,000 people in the city of, Ma of Emmaus are crucified, and they line the streets with them. Um, 2,000 people in the city of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is about two and a half miles from another village, a village known as Nazareth, where Jesus grows up. This happens be right before he's, he's born. 2,000 people in the city of Sepphoris. Magdala is burned, crosses line the street. Uh, Magdala as in Mary the Magdalene. You wonder why when she meets Jesus, uh, she's all alone? 
Mary Ma- uh, Gamla, Masada, both cities absolutely decimated by the Romans. Romans are vicious. They're vicious. They're vicious. Um, by the way, Jesus gets crucified on a hill. We often think that uh, they put Jesus on top of the hill. That's we, how we draw it, right? We draw a hill, and we put three crosses on top of the hill. What we know from history, and we don't exactly know from the scripture itself, it could be that, but what we know from history is often the way they would do it is they would put the crosses on street level up against a hill so that you could watch sitting on a hill the people you love die. That was their goal. Don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. You mess with us. You mess with Rome. We'll put another one in the street. The Romans were awful. And they're the new superpower in town. And so Passover was about worship. God in the past has moved. But but Passover was also about protest. The world is not how it should be. The Egyptians are back, only this time they're worse than they were before. God, what you did 1,500 years earlier, do it again, God. And so every year they would gather. They'd come from all over, and they would sing songs. And they would say prayers. And they would read their stories again and again. And every year, they would sing these songs wondering, is God going to do it again? They said, the prophets, their prophets said, you know what? God is going to raise up a new Moses. They called him the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. A new Moses who God, through God, or God through him, would lead a rebellion, a revolt against the new Egypt, Rome. They referred to this, uh, this moment in which the fight would happen, the prophets did, as the day, or the day of the Lord. And the prophets would say things like, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And so from all over, you have Jews gathering together, singing their songs, reading their stories, talking about this new Moses, this day of the Lord that's coming. There's an electricity in the air every Passover. And Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, uh, at, at the same time as this is happening, there's somebody else who's heading into Jerusalem. His name is Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Pilate's a Roman governor. Pilate's a You have to ask the question. So if you find the elephants, this is a major elephant. Why is Pilate in Jerusalem? It's got to be a question you ask. Why is Pilate there? He's not from Jerusalem. Pilate's from a city called Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. It is about 50 miles away from Jerusalem on the coast. He's got a mansion on the coast. Let me show you some pictures of the ruins. Look at this. Stunning. Why isn't he in in his palace? Why is he in the middle of a desert? Jerusalem's in a, on a mountain range in the middle of the desert. Why is he in the middle of the desert when he could be sitting along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea drinking a pumpkin spice latte or whatever? Like, why, why, is he, why is he so far from home? Why is he there? Why is he there for the trial? Why is he there? Pilate has a dilemma. Pilate's a Roman governor, and the Roman governor has two, essentially two jobs. Two big jobs. Now, job number one, if you're a Roman governor, collect taxes. You got to make sure that the money flow keeps coming in. You got to make sure you're paying for the Roman army. That's job number one. Job number two, keep the peace. See his dilemma? 
Josephus says 2.7 million. You got all these Jews from all over the world gathering to, your, to a capital city to tell stories and to sing songs and drink some wine. Can you imagine, what if they drink a little bit too much wine and they start saying, like, I think we could take them. There's a lot of people gathering to sing songs about how their God moved. What if you get a little bit too rowdy? What if they start actually believing that it could happen again? What if they started to say things like, hey, I think we outnumber them. I think we could do it. I think we could take them down. Pilate's got a problem. You, you, you don't want this event going. You don't want this festival. Fine, celebrate your little festival, but you don't want it getting out of hand. Because it could get violent quickly. So Pilate, his response to this problem is he staged his own little march. Uh, every year as uh, Passover approached, Pilate would organize his own march. Uh, and it's a sight to see. Um, historians refer, talk about how he would have six legions of soldiers. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. Six legions of soldiers, all of them wearing their military armor. All of them uh, behind the, the Roman eagle, the golden eagle. By the way, um, uh, Jesus at one point will say, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You remember that? That's, it's like this cute little saying. What do we do with it? Um, again and again, he will refer to Herod, the king of Israel, as a fox. You tell that fox, Herod, okay? He's a fox, Roman, the Roman symbol was the eagle. What is Jesus saying? Herod has his palaces. And, and Caesar, and Pilate, they have their palaces. My movement's different. 36,000 soldiers would march in line from city to city to city. It was all about intimidation. It's all about fear. It's all about, as you see them, as you see the dust cloud in the distance, and you hear the metallic sound of their armor. And you hear their stomping together in unison. You maybe see the sun kind of splintering off of the metal. Don't mess with us. Don't think about it. Call your neighbors up in, in Magdala. Call your neighbors up in Emmaus. Call your neighbors. See how it worked out for them. Don't mess with us. 36,000. And in front of them all is Pilate. On a horse, symbol of war, leading the charge. Show him who's king. Don't mess with Pilate. Pilate, we know from history, wants a job in Rome. He needs this to go well so he can get a job back in D.C., in Rome. He needs this to go well. He wants a job. Him on a war horse, leading 36,000 troops. Don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. Um, by the way, uh, oh, this is interesting. Next slide. Uh, he's making his way to what is known as the Antonia Fortress. This is a Roman fortress. Do you recognize this building? It's a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem. The temple where God says, this is where he'll dwell. He's going to dwell here. God's Shekinah, his manifest glory, is going to dwell in the temple. You know what the Romans said? Okay, you can have your little superstitions, they built the Antonia Fortress to be higher than the highest part of the Holy of Holies. So while you're saying your prayers to Yahweh, just above them is a Roman soldier staring down at you. Don't get any ideas. 
It's all about intimidation. All about who's really God? Who really holds the key of life and death? Um, just to show how nice they were, every year they would take a prisoner during Passover and they would release this prisoner as a way of saying, look at us, look how generous we are. We hear the voice of the people. Uh, on the year Jesus is betrayed, it's Barabbas. But we're ahead of ourselves. Uh, back to verse one. Hmm. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Uh, let's pause there again. As they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Let me show you the map. Um, okay, so Bethphage, Mount of Olives. Uh, Mount of Olives, this ridge right here. You come down the Mount of Olives, cross a valley known as the Kidron Valley, and you go into the city. Jesus is coming. This is the most likely route. Jesus is coming in. From the east. Then you got Pilate coming from Caesarea. Uh, the most likely route for Pilate is down the Via Maris, the sea, the International Sea Highway, uh, and then cutting across the Elah Valley, the, where the Valley of David and Goliath is fought, cutting into Jerusalem. Here, Pilate is coming from the west. Jesus is coming from the east. Pilate's coming from the west. Now let me show you. We read here that it's coming from. The Mount of Olives. Let me show you the Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley. So you come down the mountain and up into, this is, the temp, this is what remains of the Temple Mount. Uh, that is the, the Dome of the Rock, that golden dome. Um, it's not Jewish. It's not Christian. It's Islamic. Um, but it does, uh, it represents where the Holy of Holies would have stood. So to this day, you can't actually in this area, but it, it's where the Holy of Holies most likely would have stood is where the Dome of the Rock is. So Jesus comes in, and from here on the Mount of Olives, you can see the city. You can see the temple. You also have to wonder what he sees. Sir, do you see the soldiers marching in from Pilate? They're making their way, by the way, northwest corner, Antonia Fortress in this region. Do you see Pilate coming in on his horse? Do you see the soldiers? Do you hear the the marching of the soldiers. What does Jesus see as he's heading into town? Now, um, as this is all happening, John tells us a weird detail. Matthew alludes to the weird detail. John comes out and says it. Uh, John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Here's the question you have to ask. Why are they waving palm branches? It's odd. It's a weird detail. Especially because the, Jerusalem, again, it's in the desert. There's some date palm trees in the desert, but not a lot. They go out of their way to find palm branches. Again, we can get so accustomed to these stories that we're like, of course, this is, this is what Jesus wants, hey? But like, why does Jesus want, why? What are they saying here? What are they doing? This is the, the elephant in the room type problem. Why palm branches? If you imagine the president is in town and, um, and he, he's driving down your street, your first instinct is not to climb a tree and cut down a tree branch and say, hey, you wouldn't do this. Your first instinct is maybe you fly a flag or maybe, maybe you uh, have like a sign of some sort. I'll let you determine what you'd put on that sign, but you have a sense, like, I, like that's your first instinct. Your first instinct is not to, here's a tree branch. Well, what do you, that's a weird, 
That's a weird statement. Why the tree branch? Why the palm branch? Because it's a flag. It is a sign. It is making a statement. What's the statement? Okay. Now, a historical layer. Are you still with me? Why are, the, why are the Romans so paranoid, especially this year, that Pilate would come into town with all pomp and circumstance? Well, it has to do with something that happened approximately 200 years before this event. But the whole season has becoming ripe for another one of these. 200 years before this moment, uh, Romans are, are just beginning up their empire. They're really not even an empire at this time. Um, it's, instead of the Romans, it's a group of people known as the Greeks. You've heard of the Greeks, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks are in power. Um, but, but now they're not in power long in Israel, but while they're in power, they're pretty destructive. Uh, at the top of the Greeks at this point after Alexander the Great, and you have a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes decides... He hates the Jews. Doesn't like anything they stand for, thinks they're back, backwards and weird. He decides, I'm going to stop people from worshiping Yahweh. Well, it turns out that's not that easy to do. These Yahweh people kind of love their worship of Yahweh. How do you stop it? He decides, well, what if we could somehow make it so they, their own temple was desecrated? Now, yeah, that might work. So he puts up a statue in the temple to the god Zeus, the Greek God. Uh, the Bible refers to it as the abomination that causes desolation. If you've heard that phrase. They still worship him. They still worship Yahweh. They just walk right around the statue. Okay, we got to do something else. He decides, well, what if we can make the temple, what if, you, what if we could actually make it so they couldn't worship by their own rules? And so they took a pig and they sacrificed it and they spilled his blood all over the temple, laid the bones on top of the temple, Pig is not ceremonially clean. So now the temple mount is unclean. Then what if we could take the band, the worship leaders? They called them priests. What if we could take them and we could kill them? Then they got no one to lead their worship, find creative solutions to these problems. They, they, they'd be gone. Just destructive. In fact, the story itself is wild. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, it happens in a small town just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, the Greek army gathered. Uh, they would gather in these small pockets, and they'd go to these villages, and they tried to, like, turn villages against each other. And uh, they went to one village, and uh, they pulled the village together, and they brought in a pig, and they said, slaughter the pig. Offer the pig as a sacrifice. And a gentleman by the name of Modest Yahoo, uh, Modest Yahoo stands up, and he says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Give God your glory. Die before you do this. Well, it turns out somebody decides, yeah, no, I don't, it's not worth that risk. And so some young man steps forward and he says, I'll do it. I'll, I'll make the sacrifice. I'll sacrifice the pig. Now, we don't know why he did it, whether it was to protect his family, to protect his life, um, or if he just was scared. We have no idea why he did it, but he, he does it. And with that moment, as soon as the pig was sacrificed, Modest Yahoo, according to the story, lets out a shriek. And from inside of his cloak, he's got a dagger. He's got a hook to it. It's a special dagger known as a Sakari. And he pulls out the dagger, and he essentially leads the attack. As he pulls out the dagger, a group of men in the crowd, Jewish men, 
also have daggers. They pull out their daggers and they pounce on the Greeks. They kill them. But they know immediately these Greeks are not going to stop here. They're going to come for us. So they run off to the desert. One of them is a gentleman. It's actually Madashahu's son, a gentleman by the name of Judas the Maccabee, Judas the Hammer. Maccabee means hammer. Judas Maccabee, his son, says, you know, we don't have to stop here. We could keep doing this. We could take it back. We could kill these Greeks. We could take them down. We could do it. He gathers enough momentum that uh, he decides to fight. And over the course of eight days, as the story goes, the oil and the lamps never ran out. They fight. And they win. And they begin celebrating that day of victory as a day known as Hanukkah. But there was a problem with Hanukkah. Oh, by the way, you know what the first move was once they, once they took back the country? Judas Maccabees makes his very first stop to that temple mount, and he takes that statue of Zeus, the abomination that causes desolation, and he discards it from the temple mount. He reclaims the temple. He cleanses the temple. What's the next story in your Bible? Where's Jesus going next? Do you see how the historical layer matters to understanding? It's a very different story. We'll explore that next week. Here's the problem. They miss a festival. They miss Christmas, right? Like, they miss it. They, they miss a festival. It's not Christmas. It was a festival known as Sukkot. Uh, it's a major festival in the Jewish calendar. The book of Leviticus 23 gives seven festivals. Sukkot's a major festival. It essentially is a festival where they would, the, the, the Jewish people would gather together and they would pray to God for rain. No rain, no crops. No crops, no life. So every year they would gather as a people and they'd pray for rain. And they called it Sukkot. But they were fighting. They missed the festival. They were in war. They missed the festival. So what do you do? God will understand, they said. We'll just make up the festival. Now that we're free, God will understand. We'll just do the festival later. We'll do it after. It's kind of like... um. Grandma's going to Florida for Christmas because uh, it's cold, so we're going to do Christmas in September. Anybody else have that problem? Yeah, like, we'll just do it, la- we'll do it after the fact. We'll do it after the fact. So they celebrate Sukkot after the fact. Now, central to Sukkot is this prayer for rain. How do you pray for rain? If you're Jewish people, how do you, you need the picture. Well, if you cut down a palm branch and hundreds of palm branches, thousands of palm branches, when you wave them together, sounds a lot like rain. So the palm branch became the symbol of Sukkot to this day. On Sukkot, you'll see Jewish men and women carrying palm branches. And the prayer of Sukkot was, Hoshana, save us. Send rain, God. They missed the festival. We'll make up the festival. So this year, the year after the uh, Hanukkah, this year, they wave the palm branches. They say the prayer, Hoshanab. This year they do it with a bit of swagger. We just won a war. We, we beat the Greeks. Hoshana becomes the battle cry. The palm branch becomes the flag. We won this war. They even minted coins in that period of time where they were free. Uh, that period is known as the Hasmonean dynasty period. They minted coins. On the coin... You see that they put the palm branch. We 
Jesus comes into town, and they cut down branches. Why are they cutting down branches? What are they saying? Jesus. Kill the Romans. Kill them. You're our king. You're our king. Here's our flag. You're the king. Kill the Romans. Be a new Moses. Be a new Judas Maccabee. Kill the Romans. There's a whole political party that emerges at this time saying we got to go back to the way of Judas. The way of Judas Maccabees, that was the right way to do it. None of this pray for the enemies, none of that stuff. That's, not, that's weak. It's weak. We need to be like Judas Maccabees and actually fight for what we believe in. Those people refer to themselves as zealots. We'll be zealous for God. Does Jesus have any disciples that are zealots? Yes. He's got at least one. One we know from Scripture is Simon the Zealot. But there's another one. Uh, it's hidden in the text a little bit. His name is Judas Iscariot. There's some debate whether Iscariot means man, Ishkariot, man from Kariot, which is a, a zealot village, or Iscariot, meaning man of the dagger, man of the Sicarii. Get this. On the night uh, Jesus is betrayed, he gathers his disciples, and he, there's this weird conversation about bring a sword, and they say, we only have two swords. Remember that conversation? Why do they have two daggers? And actually, the word... He says, bring a sword. He goes, we only have two swords. We translate them the same, but the, word, the second word for sword actually is dagger. We have two daggers. And Jesus is like, that's good enough. Why do they have two daggers? Because they got two zealots. Kill the Romans. That's the message. Kill the Romans. Here's the palm branch. Jesus, we believe you can do it. The whole thing is dripping with revolution. It's all electric. Pilate's coming in from the west. Jesus is coming in from the east. These two are bound to collide. And then we have something odd that happens. Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, so if anyone's like, dude, that's my donkey. Say that the Lord needs them. That'll work. Uh, and he will send them right away. Now, maybe I've watched many movies. Like, you watch, remember Braveheart? Mel Gibson's like, ah, get us, gets on the horse. Freedom. Uh, donkeys aren't exactly intimidating. <laughs> you, ever, you ever see a donkey? Though? Can you imagine trying to go off in victory and you're like, come on, donkey. There's a reason why some people get called donkey. It's not because of how easy they are to maneuver, right? Like, why, why a donkey? The only reason you would ride a donkey, and in fact, this became a symbol, the donkey became a symbol of this. The only reason you would ride a donkey is if you were given up. If you're going to send a message across a battle line that you're giving up, one of the ways you do that is you come in on a donkey because everyone knows that... A horse is how you get there fast. A donkey is simply there to deliver a message. You're trying to say, I quit. I'm done. I give up. Is Jesus giving up? That's not what they thought. Notice what they, they think. Because they took this message very differently. They see Jesus on a donkey, and they're like, oh, here we go. He's about to do it. Notice what happens next. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a full of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hoshana, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshana in the highest heaven. See what the crowds are saying? They're not giving up. He's not giving up. They see what happens and they say, God's about to fight. He's about to do it. Now, where did they get this idea? Matthew tells us. You just got to remember remember the, the tool of Hermes that we've talked about months ago now, and then again, and then again, and again. Remember Hermes. When the Bible quotes a passage, when Matthew quotes a passage, don't just read what he quotes. Read the whole thing. If he's quoting, we'll see this play out next week. So if you want to do some homework, read next week's story and find the Remezes. You'll see the story. Read the whole thing. Here's what Matthew quotes. It's Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you know what comes next? They did. I promise you that This is a Messiah passage. This is what comes next. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, Jordan River, to the ends of the earth. Who's marching into the city on a war horse? Pilate. What does Zechariah say? The dude on the donkey is going to take down the dude on the horse. They see Jesus get on a horse and they say, we know, or on a donkey, and they say, we know how this story ends. Pilate from the west, Jesus from the east, our guy's going to win. So they cut down palm branches, the symbol of resistance. And they shout, Hoshana, Hosanna. And they say, essentially, God, Jesus, kill the Romans. Kill them. Now, here's the problem. I made a child cry. Sorry, Eric. (laughs) Here's the problem. What happens if he's not the Messiah? That's a problem. What if Jesus, there's lots of people who claim to be the Messiah. What if Jesus isn't the Messiah? Can you imagine if you're in that crowd and you're like, I don't know, I'm not positive he is. He's done some things, but I'm not positive he's the Messiah. What happens if you work up a whole crowd and they're all shouting, kill the Romans, kill the Romans, and then the Romans hear it and your dude runs away? You're toast. You're gone. The Pharisees who come with Jesus from the north know this. They know, like, wait a minute, this guy knows how to work a room. He knows how to get a crowd going. But if the Sadducees hear what he's saying, these Sadducees from the south, they're not going to be so kind. And if the Romans hear what he's saying, it's not going to go so well. Notice what, uh, what comes next in the story. It says, uh, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The whole city stirred. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Luke adds this detail in chapter 1939. Uh, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Keep them quiet. Keep them quiet. Jesus responds, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, 
the stones will cry out. Now, that's an odd thing to say. This is the moment, by the way, uh, the first time I studied this, and actually uh, someone showed me this. And the uh, first time I saw this, the scriptures, this is one of those moments where the Bible went from black and white to color for me. And it's like, I want to teach this book the rest of my life. This was one of those, those lessons for me. Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's really easy to read that and say, oh, that's really cute, Jesus. That's like a hallmark thing to say right now. It's a very tense moment, but thank you for this, this, this like, the trees of the field will clap their hands moment. This is great. We can read this and just kind of dismiss it as it's like poetry and just Jesus saying cryptic weird things. Let me show you a picture of where Jesus is again. This is the Mount of Olives. That's the Kidron Valley. This is the city of Jerusalem. What stones do you see on the Mount of Olives? Who's got the chutzpah to say it? Yeah, tombstones, gravestones. Lining the Mount of Olives on both sides, uh, well, lining the Kidron Valley on both sides, you find these whitewashed, to this day, whitewashed gravestones. Now, why would they be here outside the city? Well, the prophet said that when the new Moses comes, the Messiah comes, the dead in the Lord will rise with him and they will march into the city together. There will be a great resurrection, they said. And the faithful in God who will resurrect with him and will march into the city with him. And so they decide, if you're going to be buried and you're a righteous Jew, where do you want to be buried? Outside of the city gate. So that when he comes into the city, you will be, you'll be among them. And you'll, now, whether he was speaking a metaphor or not, they're saying, we still want to be buried there. That's where we want to be buried. So good religious Jews will spend a lot of money to buy a plot, a cemetery plot right there. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What is Jesus saying? Teacher, shh, get them to stop talking. If they keep quiet, all of those who believed, Moses' generation believed, and David's generation believed, and Solomon's generation, all the faithful of our past will rise up, and they'll tell you exactly who I am. I am the Messiah. That, it's a, I, yes, if they keep quiet, they'll rise up, and they'll proclaim exactly who I am. Now, if you were to end the story there, I'm thinking, okay, what Jesus is going to say next is, so let's go. Let's kill the Romans, right? I got the crowd. I got the message. I got the slogan. I got, I got like, the dead and the Lord will rise with me. Here's the twist. Doesn't go there. Here's the twist. Back to Luke. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Why does Jesus weep? Yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the king. Yes, I'm all, the, all those who prophesied in the past, I'm the fulfillment of that. But you want me to kill the Romans and I will not do that. You are worshiping me as the king, but you are not wanting God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom doesn't look like this. It's not going to come with a sword. In fact, if you try to fight it with a sword, they will decimate you. They'll lay you flat. 
Four days later, five days later, the crowds will gather, maybe not the same crowds, and they'll shout, give us Barabbas. Give us a real man who will actually fight. Give us Barabbas. We'd rather have Barabbas. Kill Jesus. Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Why does Jesus weep? In 70 AD, so 35 years after this day, uh, the children of this generation will launch a revolt. Let's kill the Romans. And in 70 AD, the Romans will say, it's enough. We've had enough. We've seen you play your little games. We've tried to give you the warnings. We've had enough. And they come in, and under the reign of Vespasian, the emperor, they destroy the temple, wipe it down. It's only a small portion of the wall that remains. It's the wailing wall. It's where they cry now because... They destroy the temple. They destroy the the economy. They destroy the nation. The nation gets spread all over the face of the earth. They destroy the people of God. 70 AD. Then, just to make sure that the point point got made, they minted coins. Remember the coin that they, remember the coin of we're free, we're free. They put the palm branch. This is the Jewish coin. Here's the coin of the Romans. Uh, Vespasian, Judea capta, captured. See the palm branch, next coin. See how they mocked the facial expressions of the Jewish people under a palm branch, tied hands, a Roman soldier under the palm branch. You thought that would win, we'll kill you. And Jesus cries because yes, they declared him king, but he recognizes in that moment they will not follow his kingdom, God's kingdom. And a king without the kingdom is not the king. You're going to turn him into something else, but you're not following the king. Pilate comes in from the west. Jesus comes in from the east. There are two ways to enter the city of Jerusalem. And I would argue that today in the world you and I live in, there are two ways to deal with the problems you and I find in our world as well. From politics to how do we see the problem? How do we deal with the problems in our marriage? There are two ways. There is the way of Jesus, and then there's the way that Jesus' name gets co-opted for a lot and says, "Well, that's the way." There's the way of Jesus, and then there's the way of power, dominance, control. And again and again, you find in the scriptures that Jesus, again and again and again, says, "My way looks like forgiveness from the cross." My way does not look like lording power over. Though he could, he refuses to do it. My way is different. There are two ways. And I think the challenge for the church then and now is, is it possible? We want, we want to declare Jesus king, but we really want Pilate's kingdom. We want Jesus as our king, but we love the 36,000. We love that. That's a pretty cool show. How do we declare Jesus king and submit to his kingdom? That'll be our challenge. That's certainly my challenge. How do we follow Jesus in our world? A world obsessed with the power game. Lord, we... uh, We ask for guidance because these are not easy questions to answer. Uh, Lord, we ask for help um, because uh, this is not easy to do. Uh, Lord, as we think about our own situations, Lord, maybe a little bit easier to understand in our own homes. Uh, Lord, help our relationships that right now um, we recognize that we're playing the power game. Help us, Lord, to see where where we are using our power to control somebody else. 
especially somebody that shares our last name, especially somebody that loves us. Lord, help us to do what you command us to do, which is uh, humble ourselves and submit to one another. Lord, I pray for every student here, every kid here uh, who goes back to school tomorrow, and the only game that, is, that, that appears to be winning is a power game, is a control game. Lord, help us to find creative ways to do it different. Jesus, may we be your church. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.